Let's uh, open the word to Romans chapter 12, verses 4 to 8 is where we're going to be this morning. We're going to be in Romans 12, verses 4 to 8. We are uh, creatures of convenience. Uh, You can look around you and you can realize pretty quickly that we enjoy the things that are convenient for us and when given the choice to do something that's hard or do something that's easy, a lot of times we will rest on our comforts and choose that which is most convenient for us. And here in America, we have an embarrassment of riches, things to choose from and things that are convenient for us. You don't need to look any further than the fast food industry. Uh, Most of the time, instead of sitting at home and preparing a meal for ourselves, we'll go and grab this or that because it's a little bit more convenient. When we go shopping for cars, we don't just have one thing to choose from, one item, one car to choose from. No, we have models of various kinds and and ranges all the way down from the base model of the cheapest car to the top luxury model of the most expensive brand there is. There are items inside the car from TVs and screens and climate control and backup cameras. You name it, we have the option in our cars. You want it, you've got it. Not only that, but we have different dealerships to choose from. Don't like that particular dealership? You can go to one down the road who sells the exact same car and the exact same model you like. But inside the dealership, it doesn't have that funny smell Perhaps the bathrooms are clean. The salesman isn't quite as pushy. They're a little bit nicer to you. And on and on the list goes. You have your choice of whatever you want to be the most convenient for you. In our passage this morning, Paul is dealing with the core of the church built on the foundation of Christ and His blood being its membership, the body that Christ purchased on the cross. Last week we looked at baptism, how one goes public, if you will, with his faith in Christ before the church. But then the question is raised, what are we baptized into? What do we become a part of? What does it mean to be a part of the body of Christ? Let's look at Romans 12, 4-8. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according, according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word. It's God-breathed. It's inerrant and it's infallible. It's true. It points us to truth. It is able to teach us, to correct us, to train us in righteousness that we may be equipped for every good work. We believe that. We've read it. We want to understand it. We need your help to do so. Please not only make it clear for us, but apply it to our lives. That we may be changed, further sanctified, having encountered you through your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. At the beginning of this series, 
uh, I laid out a foundation for how we should think of the church as the people of God. If you're new with us, this isn't our typical diet. We are in the Gospel of Matthew, and we've been going through the, through the Gospel of Matthew for a couple of years now, and we're about halfway through, and we're going to be going back to that at the end of this series. This is sort of a, a, a diverting path for us to uh, understand the inner workings of the church and what we are as a collective body before we go back to the Gospel of Matthew. But a couple of weeks ago, I started this series and I laid a foundation for how we should think of the church as the people of God because, and only because, of our union with Christ. That is the reason we are the people of God, is because of our union with Christ. And I said then that the church does not replace Israel. Instead, Jesus Christ is the living fulfillment of Israel. He is the truest Jew who has been given all the blessings and promises of God because of his perfect obedience to God. And so the church, us, are united to him. So we receive all the blessings that come to Christ simply because we are his body. Now, if that's a too quick overview, or if that doesn't make any sense to you, I would recommend you go back and listen to the first sermon in this series will help you understand what I'm talking about. But this morning, I want you to see if I can help is the connection between all of that and church membership. Why church membership to a local body of believers is so vitally important. This is really going to be part one of two sermons. Next week I'll preach the other one that will deal specifically with church membership. And next week we'll be looking at more local church membership and discipline and responsibilities of the local church, which will hopefully tie up any of the loose ends that I create this morning. This week I want to put a frame around how the Bible depicts church membership. Because when it comes to church membership, many people in the church, particularly young people in the church, more frequently nowadays, young people it, it will be, will push back against the very concept of church membership because the phrase church membership or joining the church isn't really found in those words in Scripture. And so they'll push back and they'll say, well, I don't think you have to join the church. I don't think you have to be a member of the body of Christ because I don't see that anywhere in Scripture. And true enough, we don't have a, a Sunday school role floating around from the first century church in Antioch. We don't see Paul as the main pastor or Sunday school teacher and the list of people in his class. We don't see anything like that. We haven't dug that up in the dirt. We have very little evidence for what we call member meetings. I think we do have some, but we don't have, we don't have a whole lot of evidence in the Bible for member meetings. And we have zero evidence for what we would call business meetings. Glory, hallelujah. <laughs> However, I am convinced that church membership can be preached from nearly every page of Scripture. And once you see what church membership is and how the Bible depicts it, you'll see it everywhere too. In fact, you'll see that it's part of the whole Bible's story is bringing you into membership. I chose the passage that we just read in Romans to be our passage this morning, but I really had intentions of focusing mainly on verse 5 of this passage. And inside verse 5, really one phrase in particular in verse 5 where Paul says individually members one of another. That phrase in particular I want to hone in on this morning. And I chose that one because I think that phrase is an undoing of our current church culture's model of church membership that looks a lot more like you joining a gym or choosing that which is most comfortable for you. 
This morning, I want you to see two aspects of church membership and that the scriptures as a whole, not only that passage, but we're going to look at the scriptures as a whole and how they support that, that it all points us to. The first is that joining the church is becoming a member of God's family. Joining the church is becoming a member of God's family. Paul uses an analogy in verse 4 of a body. And he says it has, it has different members, meaning it has appendages, fingernails, kneecaps, and earlobes, and they don't all have the same function, but Christ has made us individually members one of another. But to appreciate that the fullness of that image, we, I think we understand the image of a body, which we'll come to in just a minute, but there's, there's more packed into that members one of another than just that. And to appreciate that the fullness of that image, I want us to go back and I want us to think all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and, and chapter 2. You remember, that those are the chapters that start off all of Scripture, and they give us a day-by-day account of creation. And we see in Genesis chapter 1 that on the sixth day of creation that God decides, among, among many other things to create, to create man. And Moses gives us this little bit of heavenly dialogue right there at the beginning. Uh, In verse 26, he gives us a little insight into the heavenly dialogue. And it says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, there's been a lot of debate over the years as to what is meant by God saying, let us create man in our image. A lot of debate over what does it mean to be made exactly in the image of God. Some have suggested over the years that it it means that we have intelligence. Others have said, well, it means that we have reasoning ability. Some have argued that it means we have emotions. Some have said it, it means the ability to commune with God. That's what it means to be made in His image. We have the ability to commune with Him. Some say it means we have self-awareness. We're sentient. We can think and walk upright and vote and do all of those kinds of things that we do as part of society. We can organize ourselves. Some have said it means we have language and communication ability with other people. Some have argued that it means we have the presence of a soul or spirit, or some have argued both distinct things. Some have said even that it means, no, we have a conscience. That's what it means. However, Moses records what God means by him creating man in his image, and it seems that all of those things that I just listed come together as tools to play a central role in what God says is giving us those required tools to exercise dominion over the earth. To be created in the image of God then means that mankind is given a job to have dominion or rule over the earth. That just as God has rule over all creation, He has appointed mankind in His image to represent Him. So we have been commissioned with the task of representing God on the earth made in His image. And things like intelligence and rationality and communication and communion with God and all of the rest of the things that I listed are all vital tools in the tool belt of humanity to give them the responsibility of representing God on the earth and extending His rule and His reign, or you might say His kingdom, on the earth. But after He creates man in His image, He gives Adam and Eve their specific commission. And He does that in verse 28. He says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So there's the commission. Fill the earth and subdue it. Multiply and subjugate it. It's a big earth. You're going to have to multiply 
and subjugate it. Reproduce and put it under your feet. Be fruitful, multiply, and extend my rule over it. So Adam and Eve were created by the Word of God, by, the, by not only the Word, let there be, but then the breath of His mouth. And they were placed in the middle of the garden, a finely manicured area, but in the middle of an unsubdued earth. And their charge was to take what God had already started and spread that rule and reign out over the rest of the earth with the commission to have kids and represent God on the earth by subduing it, by ruling over it in His name. So God is giving mankind this commission to represent Him by stewarding the earth. But we know what happens. Genesis chapter 3 records it. Instead of ruling over the beasts of the field, how ironic, but that one of the beasts of the field, namely the smartest, craftiest one amongst them, creeps into the garden and rules over Adam and Eve. Subdues Adam and Eve by His Word. Following the fall of mankind, after Adam and Eve listened to the serpent and sin, God renders His punishment for their sin. But in the midst of rendering His punishment to them, He also gives them a promise. He tells them that there is going to be an offspring, a singular person to come forward who's going to do battle with the serpent. Not just do battle, He's going to crush the head of the serpent. And literally the rest of the Old Testament is tracing the seed through all of those copious genealogies that we read. Every single one of them. That, let's be honest, a lot of times we read and we kind of skip over because we can't pronounce any of the names. All of those genealogies that are listed there, all of the stories of life and death and betrayal of sin and abomination as well as success and triumph are all tracing this seed. When is that seed coming? But it's not long after the initial promise to Adam and Eve. In fact, it's just a few chapters later that God selects another man and another woman specifically, narrowly, to bring forth this seed. And God affirms, of course I'm talking about Abraham and Sarah, and God affirms to Abraham His covenant with him in a very familiar way. This is at the end of the whole Isaac story after he's gone up onto Mount Moriah to sacrifice Isaac and God stops him, provides a ram in the thicket, all of that. After the end of that, God says this in Genesis 22, verse 16. God said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice because of your obedience. Now we know from the New Testament that that offspring that he's talking about is Jesus. Paul makes that connection clear for us in Galatians 3. But, so we know that the offspring that he's talking about is, is Jesus. So God charges the original couple, Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and they are to represent him on the earth exercising dominion in God's name as his image bearer. And now here, after they fail and humanity falls into sin, God comes to Abraham and he gives him a, a promise that he is going to do the multiplying. Specifically, he says, because you have obeyed my voice. It's connected to your obedience to my word. We know, of course, that the way, as I said, the nations of the earth are going to be ultimately blessed 
is going to be in Jesus, that singular offspring. But first, before we get to Jesus, God sure enough does some multiplying of Abraham's offspring into the nation of Jews that see Abraham as their father. And to the children of Abraham, God extends the same promise to them that he said to Abraham. He tells the children of Israel in Leviticus chapter 26, verses 9 to 12, I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept. You shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. He tells them that the nation of Israel is going to represent him. I'm going to live among you. I'm going to be right there with you. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. You will represent me. I will be your king. All that sounds great. But if you wind it back just a few verses before that, in verse 3 of Leviticus 26, he says, before all of that, if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, if you listen to my word, if you obey me, then I will do all of these things. I will multiply you. I will live amongst you. You, I will be your God and you will be my people. You will represent me. Abraham, we know from Genesis, believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It was through faith. Abraham was counted righteousness, righteous. Abraham would be multiplied, it says, because he believed, because he obeyed, God says. Israel, if you obey, I will multiply you. Because what is the purpose of their multiplying? Well, go all the way back to the original couple to exercise God's dominion over the earth and subdue it. And what would the nation of Israel do? But they would bring all of the created order into the worship of God. He would make them a kingdom of priests. They would bring all of the created order under His rule and His reign, and all through them all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Israel fails in every respect of walking in the Lord's statutes and observing His commandments. However, one Israelite, one Jew in particular, perfectly observed these statutes and commands. One singular Jew. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's covenant with Abraham. He's the fulfillment of God's covenant with Abraham. And through Him, all the nations of the earth are blessed He's the fulfillment of the command given to the original couple of subduing and having dominion over the earth in both a physical way and a spiritual way. He is right at this very moment bringing men and women into submission to God's rule through His Word, is He not? Yes, He is. He is right now doing that through the proclamation of His Word. And ultimately, in the most physical of ways, He will one day vanquish all evil. Further, and in fact, even the Word tells us He's right now putting all God's enemies under His feet. Further, being the newer and better Adam, He is perfectly the image of God the exact imprint, Paul tells us, of his nature. He being truly God and truly man has represented God's nature perfectly on the earth. He is the fulfillment of Israel in that he he is perfectly obedient to all God's statutes and commands. So then, what has Christ done 
when He has instituted the new covenant in His blood. What has been accomplished here? He has given, as we've said a few weeks ago, He has given, through His death and resurrection, He has given God's people a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. Fulfilling the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah. And He has given us now, as His people, the ability to walk in His statutes and observe His commandments and do them as was commanded of the people of Israel in Leviticus chapter 26. And God does multiply us, right? He is fruitful and He multiplies us. How? Through faith in preaching the Word. Disciples are made. We baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they come under the rule of God. They submit to His rule. And so these new converts who now have the Holy Spirit inside them are born again into the kingdom of God this time as citizens of His kingdom. And they now are submitting their wills to Christ. And they too, because of the indwelling Holy Spirit, are empowered to walk and obey the things that He has commanded them as part of the Great Commission. We not only baptize them, but then we teach them to obey all that He's commanded us. Right? Paul tells us in Galatians 3, 26-29, For in Christ Jesus... You are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. How is Jesus connected to Abraham? How are we connected to Abraham at all as his people? Because of Christ. That's how. That's the only way. So, all of that is connected to the first sermon that I preached in this series. And so, if you're sitting there going, I don't understand one thing he just said. Or, if you're sitting there thinking, that blows my mind. I've never even thought about that before. Or, if you're sitting there thinking, yeah, of course, doesn't everybody know this? Or, if you're anywhere in between all those things, that's okay. If you're drowning right now, listen, sometimes we need to be thrown in the deep end a little bit, all right? Sometimes you need to realize that the Bible is a deep well in which the lamb can drink and the elephant can float at large. Okay? Right? Realize that for just a second. And so you need to realize, we need to apply our minds to this. this is, there's a lot to this. But here's what I'm saying. And this is what I think Paul is saying. This is part of what's packed in to being members of one another, one of another in Romans 12.5, is that Christ has put you in a family. That's the nature of membership in the church body. That He's placed you in a family that has been long in the making. Going all the way back to the beginning. He has placed you in a family. And He says He has made you members one of another. That is completely different than joining a gym. All right? Totally different. You can join a gym, and I can join the same gym, and we have zero obligation to one another. That's not what Christ did. That cheapens what Christ did. Christ made you members one of another. Membership in the church is a family to which you become a part. That's why Paul adds, by the way, in the context of Romans 12, on down in verse 10, he says, love one another with a brotherly affection. He doesn't say with a 
a friendly affection. He doesn't say with a neighborly affection. He doesn't say with a casual acquaintance affection. He says with a brotherly affection. Now what an impact should membership in the family of God have on you? Well, Paul says that it should mean that you have love for one another in a brotherly, a familial way. And he goes on in in subsequent chapters. You can go home and read chapters 12 all the way to the end of the book of Romans. And you're going to see this come out of what he's telling you you should do. But he goes on in these subsequent chapters to say that you should accept one another. Which I think actually is the whole thing that he's boiling down to in the entire book of Romans is ultimately that. That you should accept one another. Romans we think of as this deep theological, and it is, it's just a huge theological treatise. But in the end, Paul comes down to the main point, therefore, accept one another. Everyone has that crazy uncle. You know, for you it may be a different family member, but... I won't say that it's an uncle in my case. <laughs> but everyone has that crazy uncle. You know, the one that comes to Thanksgiving and you don't look forward to being trapped in a room with them. You know the one I'm talking about. Don't pretend like you don't. No matter what you bring up, they have a way of getting to politics. You know, it's good weather we're having. It doesn't matter if those idiots in D.C. are been on... I think my wife's calling me in the other room. That crazy uncle is still part of the family. And in spite of those conversations that you get trapped into, he still gets an invitation to Thanksgiving every year. And you hate to think of that member of your family spending Thanksgiving or Christmas alone just because of the awkward little quirks that they have? Why don't we think of church membership this way? Why don't we think of church membership this way? It amazes me how quickly division in the church will spring up over topics of debate. In the American church, particularly churches in the South, Calvinism, And Arminianism have been that. The relationship between the church and Israel, which is also connected to your view of the end times, have been that. And there are two subjects that for one reason or another split the church right down the middle. People on both sides. This church is not immune to that. And has had that in the past. In spite of the fact that just two chapters later in Romans 14, Paul says that because you are a family, do not quarrel over opinions. We're quite happy to leave church. Leave churches. And take as many people with us as we can Because of those two things, or maybe a host of other ones. He literally says, do not engage in verbal conflict because of differing viewpoints. That's what quarreling means there. But no, we'll do it. And when we do it, we'll claim God is on our side. That we have the righteous position here. No doubt... Even when I explained the relationship between the church and Israel at the beginning of the sermon, there were some in here probably that totally disagreed with that. And that's fine. You know that? I'm okay with that. That's fine. I'm quite happy to actually read the scriptures and say, you know what, I am a Calvinist. And I do read the Scriptures that way. And I think that's the best way to understand it. When I stand up here and teach from the Scriptures, I'm going to argue from that viewpoint because I think it's right. And I think you should believe that. I think you should see it that way. 
But I'm okay if you don't. I understand that you might not. Because you realize, don't you, after all, we're family. And we don't all see it the same way. I get that. At the heart, though, of those divisions that exist in the church is that we don't really believe that what membership in the body really is is being brought into the family of God. And that we should bear with the viewpoints of other people that are around us. Discuss issues? Absolutely. Debate them even quite passionately? Absolutely. Quarrel over them. Leave church over them. Absolutely not. And I fear that we are all going to have a lot to answer for on Judgment Day. Because dividing the family of God over matters of theological debate that, mind you, have been debated in the church for 2,000 years will be chief among those things that we have to answer for. Paul, after all, does say in chapter 14 of Romans, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Paul is warning us as a church body. He's warning you Christian, membership means a lot more than you think it does. And if you neglect it, and if you're willing to fight for things that ultimately are inconsequential, a lot to answer. Instead of quarreling against one another, you should find a way to accept one another. The way you do at Thanksgiving with that crazy uncle. Because you know what? He thinks you're crazy. <laughs> he thinks you're crazy. He's like, are you kidding me? Asking me about the weather? In a political climate like this, how can you even think about the weather? He thinks you're crazy. And every time he receives your invitation for Thanksgiving or Christmas, he goes, oh, got to go over there and talk about the weather again. It's being part of a family. Second, joining the church is becoming a member of the body of Christ. The phrase members one of another means more than simply being a part of the family, as you can see in that passage there. Last week we discussed what baptism signifies, and it signifies being resurrected to, to a new life, being born again in God's kingdom. In other words, when God created man, think all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God creates man in his image at the very beginning. The whole human race is summed up really in just two people, Adam and Eve. They, and, and if they had never sinned, a big if obviously, but if they had never sinned, we presume they would have had children that are right there along with them in that commission that God has given them, and they would have been representing God's kingdom on the earth. They would have been fruitful. They would have multiplied. They would have filled the earth. They would have subdued it. Subdued it. But because they sinned now, though all people are made in God's image, they're all marred by sin through and through. So now you have seven billion people walking around the face of the earth, and all of them, yes, made in the image of God, but are marred to the point that they're nearly unrecognizable as such. When Paul describes the people of God purchased by the blood of Christ, he calls it a new creation. That the, the term is important. He calls it a new creation. And that we've already seen in a, a couple of sermons ago, how does he bring about that new creation? He does it through his word and with the Holy Spirit, just like in Genesis 1, 
breathing into them breath, the breath of life. And he uses this image, Paul uses this image of a body to describe the people that belong to Christ. Why do you think that is? Why do you think he uses that image of a body, a human body, to describe the people that belong to God, having connected it now to a new creation? A body of people, mind you, that God has breathed into with his word, with his God-breathed scriptures. He tells us in Romans 8.29 then, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, not merely in the image of God, in the image of his son specifically, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So he's describing who we are as the church, as a newly created man, similar to how he created Adam in the first pages of scripture and breathed into him the breath of life. He created us. But the image that he gives, Paul gives, is a strange one. And here's why. Because the image is just all of us with one body and one head. That's weird, right? That's a little bit, a little bit strange and, and a little different from the first pages of Scripture. Because unlike creating these new little autonomous creatures, a bunch of which running around to and fro around the earth with His Spirit living in them, He describes it instead as one body like this in Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. We are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body being joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It's weird. So the first man, Adam, God formed out of the dirt and breathed into him the breath of life. The new man, the church, the people of God, God formed out of the blood of Christ. Christ is the head. All of us constitute his body collectively together, joined together, members then one of another, which means that you're not only part of a family, you benefit one another because you're part of the same body. So church membership then is two things coming together. The first, as I've said, the idea of being brought into the family of God, which in the context of Romans, I think, bears that out. Paul goes on talking about being part of the same family. So he clearly has that in his mind as he's bringing that into the text. But then you also, you're also a member, uh, so you're a member of the church, like you're a member of the family. But then second, you are a member of the church, like a body part is a member of a body. Just one body. And none of us are the head. Christ is. And this is crucial, particularly as we head into next week and we begin thinking about not just the global church, but the local church, that we're members one of another, like a body part is attached to a body. And Paul thinks this has some important implications for you, by the way. Look at what he says in verse 6 and following. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in his generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does, uh, who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness, it means, he says, that each of you serve a different function and your purpose is to pursue that function for the benefit of of those sitting next to you. It's not uncommon for people in the church to hone in on some of these specific items in the list and think to themselves, yeah, you know, I've been given the gift of leadership, and teaching and exhortation. This church doesn't seem to recognize that gifting that I've got. But if God has placed you in a church that doesn't value your leadership in the area that you feel you are gifted, it's possible that he's 
bringing out another area of giftedness in you that maybe even you don't know about. Perhaps one that doesn't require an appointment of leadership. Say service, which in many cases would be anonymous, in almost every case would be anonymous. What about contribution? Maybe he's blessed you financially. And he's put you in this congregation specifically with the purpose giving. The church has many who want to be legs or something that they see of incredible importance in the body. And few that simply see something that needs to be done and takes care of it because of their gifting. We have a very sweet lady in this church, Miss Millie Carroll, who just one day saw that the bushes out front needed to be trimmed, and so she just trims them. She just comes here, up here periodically, and she just gets out of her car with her clippers and things and, and just trims them. We have another man, Joe Ferris, who saw the sidewalks needed power washing, and the Lord had equipped him with a pressure washer, an able body, and some spare time. And so he came up here and he pressure washed the sidewalks. And I hope those people don't mind me calling them out. I'm not trying to embarrass them. I certainly don't want to do that. But it's an example of what I'm talking about. But simply to say that if God has drawn your eye to a need and He has directed your mind of how you might meet that need, and let's add one more thing. He has given you the wherewithal to be able to meet that need. The odds are astronomically high that He has put you in this body to meet that very need. The odds are astronomically low that He has put you in this body to point it out and walk off. There's no spiritual gift of criticism, I don't think. Now, that may not be what you think you were put here for. You might think the Lord has equipped me for leadership, and that may be true. That may be absolutely true, but if the, if the church that the Lord has put you in is not at this moment in need of your leadership, then He has put you here for another purpose. You might be a brilliant financial mind, but has He given you Roundup and some spare time? Because the finance committee is full and we have a treasurer, but the weeds on the playground are getting out of control since there are no kids here to stomp them down. So instead of thinking to yourself, I know how the Lord has gifted me and this church isn't using my gifts and so I'll go someplace else, Maybe consider for just a moment that the Lord has not made a mistake in putting you here, but He is exposing a different area of giftedness for you. And you're going to learn just as much in the process as the rest of us are. Because we didn't know it either, especially if you didn't. This flies in the face of how we think of membership today. In fact, it's anything but convenient. It's anything but convenient. It's not like shopping for a car where we go to find the one that has the best deal or the, the color we might like or the one that's the most hassle-free or where the salesman isn't the most pushy or where the climate in the, in, the, in the place is just like I like it. The smell is just like I like it. The people are all exactly like me. Actually, it's like being a member of a family where I have a lot of crazy people around me. Some of them are the pain in the knee. To them, I'm a pain. I'm sure. Sometimes they frustrate me. Sometimes I frustrate them. Sometimes they get on my nerves. Sometimes I get on their nerves. But they're my family. 
It's a lot more like being a part of a body. I might have that pain in the knee or pain in the finger. How many of you want to cut off your finger? That's not what you think about. That's not what you want. I can't separate from them, I might think, because I'm a fingernail. And at this moment, you probably don't think much about your fingernails. In fact, sometimes they're a little pain because you have to trim them up every once in a while. But as soon as the body gets a mosquito bite, you're grateful you've got those fingernails. In reality, each member of the church plays a vital part of this body, whether you know it or not, and whether the body knows it or not. Because each one of us are members one of another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, week in and week out, I know there are many ways my words can be taken many things that can be heard. But you know what's intended. And I pray you would make that evident. Pray that in our body, you would be able to unite us through your spirit, as your word says you will, through the preaching of your word, that we may collectively, as a unit, Become a family. That the outside world would look on a world so divided by so many various differences, some of them incredibly petty and some of them significant. That they would be able to look on us as a church body and ask, what is going on here? How do they do that? Would you do that here in amongst us? In Jesus' name, amen.